Who's had some difficulties this last week? Anybody? Nobody. Well, everybody. <laughs> well, hey, that's part of the Christian life, and God is getting the bad stuff out of your life, isn't he? He's getting the flesh out. He's getting the self-reliance. He's getting the self-dependence out of your life, and he's teaching you to depend on him. He's teaching me. So who wants that to happen? Who wants to become more like Jesus? Well, good news. He's going to keep using problems and difficulties in your life to keep making you more like him, right? And he does that. So today, this message that we're going to talk about is about being on a foundation that although there are problems and difficulties in life, that we can have a foundation, we can be on a foundation that even though the storms come, we will not be shaken, right? We will not be shaken if we stand on the firm foundation of the Lord. But if we are going to stand firm through the difficulties of this life and through the judgment to come, we must choose to exercise genuine faith, which is more than mere words. And we must choose to build our lives upon Jesus Christ and obedience to his teachings. If we're going to stand firm through the difficulties of this life and the judgment to come, we must choose to exercise genuine faith, which is more than mere words, and we must choose to build our lives upon Jesus Christ and obedience to his teachings. Now, we just have a warning in this message against lip service Christianity and building your life upon anything but Jesus Christ in his word. Now, you remember last time, the beginning of this message, we were saying it's decision time. That Jesus, after going through the whole Sermon on the Mount now, chapter 5, 6, and then here's the end of 7, now Jesus is, it's decision time. He's calling his listeners to make the choice to uh, receive eternal life, to follow him. And this choice is illustrated today in two more, uh, you know, contrasts, if you will. You'll see on the outline here. Uh, You'll see on your outlines printed out in front of you. Two responses and two foundations, right? And last time, you remember, it was two gates and two trees. This time, two responses and two foundations. Let's just review a little bit last time because um, we didn't quite finish up, you know, the end of the exegesis last time. We were talking at length about false teachers in the church and so on. And, but I'm just going to give you a little review to bring us up to where we are. The two gates Jesus gave a warning to choose the right gate and the right path. First of all, Jesus warned about these two gates, these two ways. One is wide, which leads to hell. And he said many are on it. The context, you know, is the Pharisees and the scribes. They had this external only sort of religion. They believed that being right with God was just a matter of what you do outwardly. It's not really touching the heart. And so inside they were corrupt, but outside they looked very religious. And that's an example of this wide path that Jesus warns against. Another example of the wide path we talked about is pluralism. People like Oprah and other teachers saying that there are many ways to God that are all valid. You know, any, any way is good as long as you're sincere. That's an example of the wide path. That's the very definition of the wide path, saying the path is so wide it includes everything. Um, the people that are just out there going with the flow, you know, saying, I'm kind of making up my own idea of God, agnostics, you know, there must be a God out there, but none of you know who he is, but I know there's a God and you don't know who he is. And, uh, which is by the way, just a supreme position of arrogance, you know, saying, I know there's a God, but none of you know who it is. That's another example of the wide path, right? Um, and we talked about those different things. Now, the other gate that Jesus 
contrasted the wide path with was the way of righteousness. And he said that that way is narrow and that you're to enter onto that path of righteousness through the narrow gate. And that narrow gate is Jesus Christ. You remember in John, he said, I am the gate, or he said, I am the door in other translations. I believe it's John 9 or John 10. Okay. Belief and trust in him alone is the entrance to this narrow path of righteousness. Why is it narrow? Does anybody remember what's the main reason it's narrow? Is because it's exclusive, right? Does anybody know what John 14, 6 says? I am the what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is so narrow when he says the way to the Father, right? And that's why this is the narrow gate. It's exclusively about his work on the cross, not your works, not your merits, not your church attendance, not your giving, nothing else. It's all about Jesus and his work on the cross. It's narrow. It involves repenting of your sin, denying yourself, picking up your cross daily, and following Jesus. This is why that way is narrow. That's why that gate is narrow. It's only through him. It's only through his work. The way is difficult, Jesus said, and it's difficult because it often involves persecution. Remember in the book of Timothy, Paul told young Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. I hate that promise in the Bible. One of them where I just don't care for it so much, you know? Uh, all the promises in the book are for me. People sing that song. That one too, right? And Jesus said, no one's as great. No one's greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you also. That's why the way is difficult. Talking about false teachers and bad trees in verse 15 through 20, he warned Jesus, or Jesus warned uh, his listeners to beware of false prophets. So the first thing you need to do when it comes to false teachers is you need to beware of them, right? Some Christians are just not even being, they're not being where? Being where? They're not, they're not taking Jesus' you know, statement to be, beware of them seriously, right? They're, they're just not taking it seriously. They're flipping through channels. They're watching everything. Have you ever heard a Christian say, I just chew, the, you know, I just chew on the meat and spit out the bones, right? No, 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 no. You need to beware of false teachers because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, right? You have to know doctrine as a Christian, and Jesus warned about that. He said, look, they come to you as sheeps and wolves' clothing, or wolves in sheep's clothing. <laughs> and uh, so they look just like any other Christian teacher. They look nice. The sheep's all fluffy and, you know, and they look cute. And you just don't know the difference right at first. But how can you tell them? Verse 16 said, you'll know them by their fruit. You can look at the way they act, right? You can watch the way that they react when people on Inside Edition confront them about their $750 million that they've been you know, storing up tax-free and, and so on. You can watch their reactions. Now, the application was beware of false teachers. These two different trees, they had, you know, the false teachers got a bad root, so it produces what? Bad, you remember that statement? Bad root, bad fruit, right? And so you can see that in false teachers, how they handle the word. Do they preach the gospel? Are they talking about the blood of Christ? Is there only one way to salvation? Is it a pep talk or is it repent of your sins? Is it boosting up man? And elevating man, or is it elevating God and telling man to humble himself? So you have to know the difference between the true gospel or not. Now, the application there was beware of these false teachers, the true trees, but there's a wider application, right, for the Christian. What kind of fruit are you producing as a Christian? You see, if you're truly a Christian, if you're truly on the wide path, 
then you're producing, or the narrow path. Oh, boy, these are two, oh my goodness. Lord Jesus, help me. <laughs> if you're truly on the narrow path to salvation, then somebody can look at your life like they can look at a good tree and they can see good fruit, right? So if you wonder if somebody's a Christian because they claim to be a Christian, but you don't see any Christian evidence in their life, you don't see any fruit, it's safe for you then to say that they're probably not a Christian. And then, so then you treat them like they're not a Christian. You evangelize them like they're an unbeliever because they need help to see the gospel. So the wider application, not only just the false teachers, beware of them, but look at the tree, look at the fruit coming off of your life. Are you committed to a sinful lifestyle? Are you angry constantly with people? Are you not repentant? Do you not pray? Do you not read the Bible? Do you not, you know, I mean, because if those things are present, those are bad fruit. You know, but good fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I love the word of God. I'm in the word. I'm in church. I'm in fellowship. I love Christians. I want to serve Jesus. That's good fruit. And you can know a tree by its fruit. Two responses this time. Here we go. Verse 21 through 23. Now Jesus brings us to these next choices and these warnings here. He warns about empty professions of faith in him. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? But I will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, listen, when you read this this week, if that didn't cause you just at least to go, whew, then, well, it should. So Jesus is warning about false empty professions of faith in him. Ferdinand Waldo de Mara. Has anybody heard of this guy? One of the greatest imposters the world has ever seen. He begins his imposter life at age 16. He pretends to be a monk and he gets, you know, he becomes a Buddhist monk and he fakes his way in into a monastery, and uh, it's not long before they figure out that he's not supposed to be there. 16 years old, right? Well, he moves on from monk into the field of medicine, and he uses his computer, and he fakes documents to get himself accepted into medical school. Uh, it doesn't take long before he drops out because of the work involved. He wants the prestige. He wants the position he wants to be known as these things, but he doesn't want to do the work. So he moves out. He gets kicked out of uh, medical school. And next, he does the same thing again, comes up with some documents, and he fakes his way into the military. Now, in the military, he insisted that he came up the ranks right away from the time that he enrolled because he was a medical professional. <laughs> and so they brought him in as a surgeon. He healed, or he worked on three Koreans, brought healing to them, studying textbooks while nobody was looking and figuring out how to administer medicine. He also amputated a leg successfully, all while impersonating a surgeon. Now, the only way he was ever found out was because a newspaper article, you know, talking about this, this Ferdinand, this surgery, amputated this guy's leg, he's the hero, but the name that he was using to, you know, is, here's my name on the doctor, this and that. The newspaper article came out, and the true doctor's mother read the newspaper article and said, no, that's my son. This guy's not my son. And that's the only way he was ever caught. <laughs> right? 
greatest imposter the world's ever seen. Well, what did Canada do? They deported him back to the United States in November of 1951. <laughs> so when the true judgment came, he was deported. Now, when the true judgment comes, it's going to be worse, though, for imposter Christians. So we see a warning, verse 21, about a response of just mere words. Not everyone who says to me. Now, I want you to notice something here. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord. Jesus is indirectly calling himself Lord right there, isn't it? Isn't he? I just wanted you to notice that. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. Jesus is saying, people call me Lord. I love that. He's my Lord. Now, but not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. This is a proper, necessary verbal confession of the Lordship of Jesus. It is necessary to have a true confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I've thought about this when I, you know, when we baptize people, we take them under the water and we say, you know, is Jesus your Savior? And they proclaim uh, the Lord. And the Bible says that a confession is necessary. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, right? Matthew 10, 32 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. I guess, anybody know the rest of that verse? Deny me, same is true. So proper confession of Jesus Christ is essential, but it's not enough. Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, in Luke 6, 46, um, in a similar teaching, Jesus inquires, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Has anybody read that verse? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? He was speaking to people that were following him. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do the things I say? Because it just doesn't make sense to use that word, Lord. See, the word translated Lord in the Greek text is the word kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios. It means Lord, it means master, it means owner, it means authority. Now, those who call him Lord and truly understand what they're saying, these people, albeit not perfectly, are doing what he says. So it doesn't make sense to call anybody authority or boss or, can you imagine you go to work and your boss says, look, I want to give you something to do. And then you don't do it. And then they say, well, I got to fire you. I'm the boss. And you say, I know, you're the boss. But they say, well, isn't this, this is a little confusing because um, I'm the boss and I'm telling you what to do, but you're not doing it. But yet you call me boss. So I'm confused here. And then you got to get HR involved. And it's a big, you know. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say? Jesus asked. He says, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, but the end of that verse, uh, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that works earn salvation. That would make a whole bunch of other verses untrue in the Bible. Remember when his disciples come to him in the book of John and they say, what does it mean to do the work of the Lord? And he says, it's to what? It's to believe, to believe on the one whom he sent. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 John 3.16, for God so loved the world that anybody that would, you know, he sent his only begotten son that anybody who would believe, right? So 
Jesus is not suggesting here that works are required to get into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He is making the precise point that James made in James chapter 2, verse 26, where it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James isn't saying that works are required for salvation. James is saying that the sort of faith that you need to have to be saved, that faith does works, right? The type of faith is a living faith. It's an active faith. The type of employment that you're going to have, it's going to come to you if you don't just call the boss boss, but it's also that you do the things that he says, right? It's like you have to have that sort of relationship. I mean, I truly believe you're the boss, right? I truly believe, Jesus, you are Lord. And so, of course, it's reflected in my behavior and in, in how I live. True faith influences the heart and life so that we obey God, so that we serve God, and so that we do the will of God. Put it this way. By that same grace that saves us, God produces in us fruit of the new birth that we have received. If you truly have faith in Jesus and you're truly born again, God has put a new life inside of you, and there's truly evidence in your life of that new life inside of you. That's what he's saying. The kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that trusts and obeys. Didn't Jesus really illustrate this teaching? He said, I always do the things that please my Father. Isn't it true that he is a really good illustration of this? Unlike the false prophets and the cultural Christians, the Sunday-only Christians, Jesus' works matched his words. He was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What Jesus said was backed up by his actions. And thank God, huh? Thank God that Jesus wasn't a phony, that he just came and said a bunch of stuff, and then he didn't go through with it. He's the best example of this. In fact, though, he's the only one that is perfect about his word. He's the only one that's ever been perfectly obedient. But it makes sense that he's calling us to live like him because we're his people. So Jesus gives a strong warning to all those tempted to respond to his teaching with mere words. Now a warning about a response of mere works. The next verse, verse 22. <clears throat> Many will say to me in that day, which is uh, judgment day, by the way, um, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We cast out demons in your name. Uh, I've done many wonders in your name. Now, he's talking about judgment day. Hebrews 9.27 says, is it appo- it's appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank in between death and life. It's appointed for man to die once, and then immediately, he says, comes the judgment, right? So this is what is being talked about here. He says, many will say to me in that day. Now, just as Jesus in the last little section, you know, called himself Lord indirectly, notice here that Jesus is in the, he's put himself in the position of judge, hasn't he? Isn't that interesting to think about? You want to know more about Jesus? He's not only Lord, he's also the judge, right? Uh, He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? And then depart from me. Obviously, Jesus has the authority to determine who goes into heaven and who goes into hell, right? Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did all these wonderful wonders in your name. Now, the last verse, the last section, I'm sorry, warned against mere words. But these people seem to be doing works. Now, 
It seems like they've been doing mighty works. Now, this is a mystery. Like, were they really doing the works? Was, were they just saying that they were? Jesus doesn't say that they were, or he doesn't say that they weren't. So, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you haven't been doing works. You know, and he doesn't say, you haven't been doing works in my name. He doesn't, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, I just said, depart. You know, I never knew you. I think there's a key in that, being known by Jesus, right? Although they've been doing mighty things, which Jesus, he doesn't necessarily deny it, they were looking to these things as the basis of their righteousness. That's what it seems like. In that judgment day, when I point to my works, Jesus will say, depart from me, I don't know you. You see, we're saved by grace through faith in the work that Christ did. And so if I'm looking to any of my works as my righteousness, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. We must know it's possible to do things in the name of Jesus, so we think, and yet have no saving relationship with him. It is possible to look at what we do for God as the basis for our entrance into heaven, our merit for salvation. Many people do things for God, preaching, teaching, serving, singing, leading, evangelizing, whatever it may be. If you don't have that personal connection with the Lord, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, fellowship, love, if you're not coming to him solely based on his work, you're thinking your works merit and deserve salvation of any kind. I'll say, I don't know you. There's a real danger of assuming that you're saved because you are actively doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus. I just read about a megachurch pastor, another one, where... Um, he stepped down from a mega, mega church in New York City, and uh, one of the sister churches closed in Dallas because he was having an affair. I mean, the, the guy was preaching for a period of time while he's, you know, having an affair with a woman from the church, you know? And now, I, I don't, any of us are capable of that kind of stuff, right? And so I'm not trying to judge the guy. Uh, you guys read about Ravi Zacharias last year, you know? Any of us, when we read these stories, first of all, we should think, I'm capable of the very same thing if it wasn't for the grace of God. None of us should ever point fingers and look down at anybody, ever. We should always, I mean, I am capable of this stuff. I've done terrible things in my life that I can't even imagine that I did them now, you know. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we could all do whatever. If we don't maintain our relationship with the Lord, if we don't stay serious about what we're doing, we will backslide. Right? Maybe to a different extent, but you will backslide. If you're not in the Word, you're not in prayer, you're not coming to church regularly, you're going to backslide. Now, I bring that up, though, because maybe these gentlemen could have been tempted, at least, and I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe they could have at least been tempted at one time to say, you know what? God's really blessing what I'm doing. I'm doing all these things in the name of the Lord. The, the pastor from New York City used to show up in a limo or in a chauffeured car before he gave his sermon. <laughs> he would wait in the green room in back, you know, and he would come out like a celebrity, give his sermon, and he'd take off again, you know what I mean? That's a big indicator that your heart's not a pastor. You're not a pastor if you're in the green room, you know. 
shepherd smells like sheep. But it must be a little tempting when you're flying around and you've got a huge ministry. It must be tempting to look at what you're doing for the Lord and think you're right with the Lord. If God was all that upset at what I'm doing, how come he's still allowing my ministry to go? Well, everything that's in the dark will come to light. In the book of Numbers, it says, your sin will find you out, right? Now, you say, I'm far removed from that. I don't even think about that. Well, think about this. We are in the danger of the same thing, of having a not-so-good relationship with the Lord. But even us that serve here at Calvary Chapel, we could say, look, I must be right with God because I serve every week. You know, I'm doing okay. God's happy with me. I'm showing up. I'm doing the things. But listen, if you don't have any relationship with him, if you're not producing good fruit in your life outside of here, you might come here and you might do your job just fantastically here, but you might go home and not display the fruit of a Christian at all. And you have to really check yourself and not rest on the fact that you're doing things here. Hopefully we don't have any of that going on. We make it pretty hard to become a servant here. It's easy, but it's hard. You know, if, and if you serve here, you know what I mean by that. Um, and we do that because we, we hope to not have people just coming in here, warm bodies, just doing something that we don't know what they're doing with the rest of their life. But any of us, this is a temptation for any of us. Look, I go to church. I put money in the box. I, I clean up at church. I make coffee. I sing. I do whatever. Well, listen, are you displaying fruit in your life? Because maybe you're not a real Christian. Because you can serve, apparently, and not be a real Christian. Should be a real cause for pause here today for any of us. So he gives a strong warning to all those tempted to respond to his teaching with mere words and mere works. Now he shows the right response uh, that we see in verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Uh, Jesus needs to know you, right? And the way that he knows you is by you coming to him in uh, a real personal relationship. You see, the thing was, is a lot of people called him Lord, Lord, but they don't have that relationship with him. There are a lot of people today that say, I believe Jesus is my Savior. You say, that's fine. That's great. I'm glad you do. But do you, do you know Jesus as Lord? Because he's not just your Savior. He's also your Lord. Say, well, how do I know if Jesus is my Lord? Very simple. Do you do what he says? If you don't do what Jesus says, Jesus is not your Lord. And Jesus will tell you, depart from me. I never knew you. That's what he's saying here. What are the things I should be doing? How, I mean, well, first of all, you need to open the Bible and you need to figure out what Jesus is telling you to do. You need to listen to the sermons here that you're hearing and hear the Bible teaching that you're hearing, and you need to apply the things, right? You need to be in the Bible and renew your mind daily and, and get in and get instructions. If you're in the military, you don't say, I, I wonder what to do. No, but you've got somebody on top of you that tells you what to do. And that's the very same thing that Jesus is doing with your life today. The only thing is, is he's not standing in front of your face like a drill sergeant. Here, there's a book and there's a church, and there's fellowship, and there's other Christians, and there's ways to learn. And Jesus is lowly and gentle, and he doesn't force himself on anybody. But he is definitely the Lord, and he is definitely, that is his rightful position. And those that call him Lord, Lord, and don't do what he says, and those who do works in his name, but don't have a relationship of Lord, you know, master, servant, if they don't have this sort of relationship, Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, that's a cause for pause, Right? Now, it's understood. Everybody knows, of course, nobody obeys Jesus perfectly. Everybody gets that. But there's a desire in your heart to obey him, and you recognize that he is Lord. You recognize that you have that relationship with him. 
Listen, if you could do this perfectly, Jesus would have never had to die. That's plain as day. The cross would make no sense if you could do this perfectly. So get that out of your mind, right? But honestly, ask yourself, is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord? Do you figure out how to be a dad? Do you figure out how to be an employee? Do you figure out how to be a grandparent? Do you figure out how to be a mom? Do you figure out how to be an employee? Do you figure out how to be a student? Do you figure out how to be a pastor? Do you figure out how to be, you know, how do you, where are your marching orders coming from in life? Is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord? You need to have that servant-Lord relationship, that personal relationship built on love and trust, built on the gospel, on his work that he did for sinners on the cross. You responding freely to his gift of love, surrendering yourself like the bondservant uh, in the Old Testament. Remember, if he doesn't want to leave, he goes to the doorpost and then he puts an owl through his ear and he says, I love my master, I don't want to leave. And you're coming to Jesus as his bondservant. How about every epistle? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, right? James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, right? Have you come to Jesus as his servant? Because if you haven't, there's, Jesus is causing us to pause and examine our relationship. To him. Two responses, uh, you know, the mere words and works or a responsive obedience and a personal relationship based on love and trust. Those are the two responses. Now, moving to the next section, two foundations. Verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of Jesus and doesn't do them, I'll liken him to a foolish man. And all those same things happen. Uh, Storms, floods, rain. But this guy's house falls. What's the difference? We'll talk about that. Last year, um, we had the privilege of remodeling one of the rooms in our house. And part of what we were going to do was we were going to put down floor covering. And I wanted to put down ceramic tile. And... uh, we didn't end up doing it, but we were going for ceramic at first. And before we got into it, I discovered that one corner of this room was three and a half inches lower than the other. <laughs> right? Now, if you know anything about construction or carpentry or anything like that, you know, three and a half inches lower. You know those balls that you sit on that are supposed to make your abs like abs of steel, those big balls? Like everybody buys one and that goes in their basement. You know, because, you know, because it doesn't work overnight, you know, you don't do sit-ups on it, you sit at your desk, you know, like while you're eating. <laughs> yeah, those things. You could put that ball on the floor of the room, and it would just roll to the other corner. I mean, it was that steep. And so you can't put ceramic tile on that, right? Because one of two things, or maybe more is happening, but at least two things. Either the foundation is just terrible and has sunk that much since this addition had been built, or it was just never, you know, built correctly in the first place. Now, two, those two things could also be true of Christians, right? Their foundation is just terrible, you know, or else maybe it was just never even built correctly in the first place. And the importance of having a solid foundation, if you put ceramic tile down on a floor that's saggy and kind of moving around, what's it going to do? I mean, it's going to crack, all the grout's going to break, uh, you know, the, the trials of life are going to come upon it, and it's not going to last, so what I did, though, you're wondering, what did you guys do? Well, I had my buddy Adam here. We, we ripped out the subfloor, and uh, it was a massive project. We took the whole subfloor out of this room and put new joists in and leveled it all up, and it's like, looks good now. And so what a privilege Erin and I liked that. She helped out a lot too. 
But, uh, you know, you come over to my house someday and I'll show you the floor and you'll be like, I would have never known. You know, it's so solid. It's such a, such a firm foundation. <sighs> Are you built on the rock? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. That's the key. Whoever hears the sermon on Sunday and does it, right? Whoever hears the Bible, what Jesus said, and does it. That's the key. Notice that there. You should outline that in your Bible or highlight it if, if, uh, if you have a problem with this. You know, it's a good reminder when you read through this. He who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. So what Jesus considers to be wise is a person that is obedient to his word. So vice versa is true. The person that Jesus considers to be a fool is the one that hears the word of God and doesn't do it. That person's a fool. No. The rains, the floods, the winds, they come. These are the usual storms of life, sickness, deaths, heartbreaks, loss, disappointments. And I believe it could even include God's judgment to come in this context, what Jesus is talking about. Peter says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though something strange has happened to you. It's normal. Trials are normal. Being a Christian doesn't give you immunity from trials, problems, or satanic attack. Your foundation is going to be shaken if it hasn't yet. You see, when the storms come, it's the foundation that supports you. What sort of a foundation do you need as a Christian? A few things. You need to know there is a God. You need to know that he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's omnipresent, and he's the creator. You need to know that he loves us. Can you imagine not knowing that God loved you? You have to know that he's good. There are times in your life where it's not going to seem good, nothing's going to seem good, and the only thing that you're going to be able to focus on and have as a foundation is, I know, even though I don't see how this is going to work out, I know God is good. I know he's good. And so even though he's doing things in my life I don't like and they're painful, I know that he's good. I have to know that. I have to know he's always up to something good, right? You have to know as part of this foundation, this privilege to know why there is pain and suffering in this world. You know how different it is for you to go through pain and suffering than it is for somebody that doesn't know why there's pain and suffering in this world? It makes a huge difference. You have to know that there is an end to the pain and suffering coming. We have to know that Jesus on the cross fully atoned for our sin. We have to know that you're, you have to know this, I have to know this, that our lives have value and meaning. Don't go to public school. They'll tell you that you're just an accident. You're a whole bunch of ac random chance accidents, and life has no other purpose than to propagate DNA, and it's just all a big nothing. Got to know that your life has value and meaning because God created you fearfully and wonderfully. Got to know that your destiny is in heaven. And you got to know that you walk by faith and not by sight. Now, if you have that sort of foundation, the storms come, you're built on Jesus Christ, and you don't fall. A life that is built on the infallible, unshakable word of Jesus Christ will not collapse in this life or the judgment to come. 
as a pastor, I've seen people throughout my few years um, come to me and say, life's falling apart. And the ones that are really, really freaking out are the ones that don't have a real solid foundation. But then I've seen other people where their life is, by my standard, is falling apart way more than what this other person is complaining about. And they're joyful. Why? Foundation. And then as the pastor, that's your advice a lot of times is you've got to get in the Word. You've got to get in the Word. And the next time you talk to him, same thing. Not in the Word. Not believing God's promises. Yeah. Expecting to be able to weather storms. I mean, it's all about the foundation. Not everybody who, but everybody who, uh, verse 26, hears these sayings of mine, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain descended, floods came, and the winds blew. Do you notice that wording is exactly the same? Did you notice that? I think it's intentional, right? Because the same things happen to the wise that happen to the foolish. They beat on this house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Foolish man, a person that hears the sayings and the words of Jesus, yet does nothing about it. Those that listen to sermon after sermon, don't apply the teaching. Many people today build on sand. And they look the same as anybody else does until the storms come. And the foundation is then revealed. But God gives you an unshakable foundation. A firm foundation. Praise the Lord. You know, can you imagine your life? Can you remember what your life was like before you had this foundation? You were beat every which way. You were crazy. You know, you didn't know what to do. Some of you turned to alcohol and drugs, and some of you buried your head in your work, or some of you are codependent on people, or you know, whatever it is. You know, like you found some way. You had some foundation, right? Everybody has a foundation. Yours, though, does it hold you up? I love that when people would come to Pastor Chuck and say, uh, religion's a crutch. Jesus Christ is a crutch. And he'd be like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And it's the only crutch that'll hold you up. What's your crutch? What's your foundation today? It's decision time, right? Are you on the narrow path? Have you come to Jesus Christ and him alone, not looking to any of your works? Are you producing good fruit in your life? Are you producing the fruit of true Christianity? You know a good way, if you're a parent, to find out if you're producing good fruit? I've, I've discovered this. Is I ask the teenagers how their parents are at home. That's a good way to see if there's being, you know, some fruit being produced in the home. Good way. Ask your kids, are you like Christ? Sit down with your kids tonight and say, am I like Jesus as far as you know? Good way to see if you're producing fruit. Here's another good way. Ask your wife. <laughs> you know? Ask your husband. Ask your closest friend. Are you producing good fruit? 
Can you see the evidence of Jesus Christ in my life? Do you call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? How do you deal with storms? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And thank you for that firm foundation that you give us, Lord. And I pray for all of us here, myself at the top of the list, God, that you would help me to apply these things to my life. Thank you, Lord, for convicting me to stop and look, see where my righteousness is. Is it in my works? Is it in what I do for you? Lord Jesus, it's our, it's our heart to produce good fruit for you. We ask that you help us, Lord, with everything that we need. We want to honor you, give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.